welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We bring on current assistant coach for AIC, Stephen Wheedler. And what an, what a year they had last year. And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, as far as Weeds' background, he's a kid from Long Island and went on to play his college hockey Division three at Elmira and Southern Maine University. Uh, then he went on to play two years professionally in the SPHL and uh, the great city of Knoxville before going on to be an assistant coach at Division three Curry College and then going on to his current job as an assistant at AIC. And what a great conversation this was with Weeds. He's a great guy, but before we bring on that great guy, let's bring on another great guy, Jeff Lavecchio, the talent of the podcast, Vex. What's shaking tonight, man? Oh, wow. Just feeling love right now with that intro. Thank you. Do what uh, I can. Do what I can. <laughs> uh, people helping people. People helping people. People, people, <laughs> people helping people. I got a ring, too. It says E-L-E. Okay? It says love. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, not much, man. Pretty cool day. Um, had TVs delivered to the new gym in the rink that uh, that me and my partner kind of put together here in Chesterfield, and I had my my AAA team that I personally coached, they took the day off the ice um, and just worked out with me in the gym. So they're the first ever team to get to work out in there. So that was pretty pretty special for me to train my own team in in this uh, in this gym for the first time. So that was exciting. Nice. Did you put them through the paces? Tough workout or what? Uh, medium. We have a we have a <laughs> medium. Same, same. We medium have a, workout. <laughs> yeah, extra me. I want extra medium <laughs> on them tonight. It was. You know, we we play so many games and travel so much, and like I do believe in like pushing the boys, but like this stretch we have is like legit insane. So it was it was extra medium tonight. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Like I was thinking of a joke, and it's just too too whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When people ask me uh, all the time, or I'm chirping somebody about getting having a small shirt, I'm like, "What'd you order? An extra medium?" <laughs> That's right. It's better than my extra smalls that I get. So, um, good stuff. But, uh, Hey, this was a great conversation with weeds. I mean, uh, you know, AIC, they have had an unbelievable turnaround of that program. And I have some stats here that I actually want to read, um, from kind of where they were to where they are now. And it kind of just goes to show you how unbelievable their culture turnaround of that program has been. So I'm going to start in 2003, 2004, which is a long time ago. But 2003-2004, I'm going to read the amount of wins that they've had per year starting then. Are you ready? I'm all in, baby. <laughs> okay. I thought I lost you for a second there. Okay, so starting in 03-04, ready? 5, 4, 6, 8, 8, 5, 5, 8, 8, 12, 10, 4, and 7 wins. That's before the coaching staff that's at AIC is there right now. And then they took over. Uh, so with Townsie, who's actually at Clarkson right now, and Weeds and Eric Lang, who's the head coach, um, their first year they had eight wins. Then they went up to 15. And then last year they had 23 wins, their first winning season, and basically forever uh, won the regular season title for Atlantic Hockey, won their league title, and then went on to upset St. Cloud State, who was the number one seed in the NCAA tournament in the NCAA tournament. So, I mean, just 
what an incredible run they had last year. And it was so cool getting the chance to just talk to, to weeds about kind of how they changed the culture and what they did to get that success so quickly in their turnaround. I mean, those numbers are crazy. Isn't that like, nuts? Holy cow. Like that's like legit insane. Like what? <laughs> what? I mean, these guys should write a book. I think <laughs> maybe we should be on their show. <laughs> I, I, that number is like literally astounding. Like I can't cause college hockey, even though people are like, Oh, it's cyclical. It's cyclical. Like at the same time, the same schools who are always good. You know, they're usually always good because people want to go there because they're good. And then it's just like keeps going around in a circle. But like that number to go from there to there, I mean, it just tells you how important like doing the little things are like he talks about in the podcast and like, when you have a standard and then sticking by that standard, no matter what the cost is, you might lose one game tonight in October, but that sets the standard for now everyone to play up to or, or live up to as a, as a man. And now in February, you know, January, February, March, like when it matters and it's playoffs, like everyone will hit that standard because they know what they're set at. It's really, wow. That number's nuts, dude. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and it's also interesting, too, because I, I still keep in touch with a lot of guys in the college hockey world. You know, I've made a lot of friendships with uh, with a lot of people and still talk to a lot of people. And, and uh, just kind of like the state of the college hockey recruiting is a little bit dicey right now and not a ton of integrity, um, obviously, with some people and some programs. Um, but it was really interesting to talk to Weeds about the way that they go about recruiting and building their culture because um, – and I pressed him on it a lot, like I, 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 because I feel like in recruiting a lot of times, and and I'm guilty of it just as everybody else probably is. You always err on the side of talent, so you want the most talented players to be a part of your program. But it's not necessarily always the most talented players that wins you championships. It's the right character kids as well. Talent is a prerequisite. You need that. But we, again, we err on the side of talent. We don't look so much into the character and uh, what what the guys at AIC call the A-type personalities. And uh, just impressing weeds about it. I mean, it's so amazing to hear that like they do not waver when it comes to the types of people that they bring into their program. Forget about the talent. They want talented guys, obviously, but they don't waver at all in terms of the types of people that they bring in. And then every decision that they made in terms of, again, like even you said, like they'll take a short-term loss for a long-term culture gain any day of the week. And every decision that they made was made toward the culture. And even as coaches, sometimes we err on the side of talent when we're putting together our lines and we're putting together our lineups. We want to make sure we have the most talented group out there. Well, the most talented group out there might not be the best for the culture in the long run to, to make a healthy program. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about their thought process when it comes to those kinds of things. And it put a lot of things into perspective for me as a former college coach into maybe even overlooking and looking at some of the decisions that we made as a staff when I was at Cornell and uh, just reflecting upon that. And it was really cool to hear his perspective on it. Yeah, that is awesome. And I guess it comes down to like, who are you going to want on the ice in the last minute of your playoff game? Like kind of think about like that stuff too. It's like, yeah, you want a talented guy out there, but at the division one level, everyone's talented. So for the most part, and everyone's really good. Like you're going to want probably I'm guessing 
a character guy, like character guys out there who are like team guys. Sometimes I think about that when like when we are putting lines together or like, you know, it's like, oh, well, this guy's like so skilled, like he's right there. And it's like, all right, right now, throw a puck in the corner, put our put this guy or like this super skilled guy who's coming out with that puck. Like nine times out of ten, it's probably the character guy who will gnaw his own arm off to win at a game. You know what I mean? Where the other guy kind of wants it a little easier most of the time. Yeah. So it, it does make sense. Well, it's it's just it's such an interesting debate, right? Because you need both. You need to, both to for win. Sure. You have to have talent, yeah. but you have to have the right people on the bus as well. And that dichotomy of figuring out, you know, the you obviously want to find the people that have both. Yeah. <laughs> but you want a bothy. Are those called bothies? Bothies, sure. We'll go. You with want it. a bothy. You want the bothies, but uh, yeah, I mean, just hearing them talk about how they just they don't waver on it though. Like they don't care, and that's one thing that I feel like I've learned. If I were to go back to be a, a college coach again at some point, or a scout, or whatever it may be, like be okay in making mistakes on things that you don't believe in, and they don't believe in kids that aren't what they call a personality kids. The, the ones that are the leaders and the ones that, like you said, would gnaw their arm off to make sure they win a hockey game. And uh, like, again, like a lot of us in the scouting world, we err on the side of talent all the time. Um, and, and for good reason, because you need talent. You need talent yeah. to win. But at the same time, like I feel like the teams that win are the ones that just bring in the best character kids as well with that and just have an unbelievable culture and make decisions towards their culture, not to winning short-term games. Yeah, and I know this question is really stupid because I was thinking in my head, how could I, how could I make it word it better? But it's like if you could have a, a super skilled guy who's like – a medium character guy or There's the that best character <laughs> guy ever that's just got, you know, extra medium skill. Who do you take? Yeah, I mean, I think – so here, I'll, I'll answer your question with a Mike Krzyzewski quote. Mike Krzyzewski, the coach at Duke, like his word is like I'd take a two-star recruit with a five-star work ethic any day over a five-star recruit with a two, two-star work ethic. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but again, there's a balance there's such a balance and, and that's why building a team is, is so tough because once you, when you're dealing with the human element, it's never easy because right. the human element can't be, you know, it can't be quantified. You can't say like, oh, this person's character is at a 80. <laughs> right. You can say right. like his skating is or yeah, it's all not, this it's kind not of NHL stuff. 99 where it says like, <laughs> you talk to the guy and right next to his head it'll be like speed 78, character 42. <laughs> I love how you said NHL 99. That was 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so gross. It's all right though. Oh, that ain't right. It's okay. It's okay. But it's, uh, you know, I, I know there's a bunch of college guys that listen to this, and I think they're really going to get a lot out of, you know, hearing the way that AIC kind of did their business. And, and again, what they did last year is incredible. From where incredible. they were, they were the la- – when I was coaching Cornell, they were kind of a laughing stock. I mean, they did not win a- at all. And uh, and now, I mean, look at what they did. They go on they win their ncaa tournament game against state cloud state which was an absolute wagon last year they won the regular season title they won their league title i mean that's that is hard to do man that is really hard to do yeah that's those numbers still like jump out at me so much it's like oh 
you know, the same, the same, the same, the same. Wow, better. Holy crap, way better. Oh, my God, insane. Like, that's just, that's unbelievable. What are you even talking about? The numbers of wins that you said when you were like four, four, five, four, 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 a thousand. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just, because it honestly reminded me of Western Michigan when I was there. Like going into it, it was like seven wins, six wins, seven wins, seven wins, you know? And so then I put myself in that position, like bring myself back to when my freshman year when we weren't very good. And I was just like, oh God, am I going to go through this for like three more years, you know? So for a coaching staff to go in there and turn it around is that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, I even think of it too. And and I'll pose the question to you too. Like I, I think about when I was a player and you know the teams that I was on that did really well versus the teams that I was on that didn't do very well and I think of the talent and I don't even necessarily know if the talent was that much different but the culture was a lot different it was a lot different the teams that did well and won the championships were all bought in man and we loved each other there wasn't a a weak link in there and all that kind of stuff and then the teams that didn't do so well um, I don't even know if really the talent was that much different, but there were some issues when it came to the locker room. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with thousand percent. I think anyone who's been on winning teams and losing teams, like what's, what's the difference? Usually culture is suffering. I mean, also could be you're missing like a pretty sick goal scorer, but I mean, it is, it is like, it's, it's just different. Like guys go their own separate ways in the, after practice, you yeah. know what I mean? As opposed to like what we've talked about before, like half the team plus going to eat together, you know, and that's a culture thing. So yeah. T- and I, I, totally I think agree. just going along with that, I think one of the mistakes, and this is a mistake that I made, I think when I was a coach and being out of it now and having talked with a bunch of players and stuff, like, I feel like, um, I feel like coaches don't do enough asking questions about the culture to the team. Um, and, and figuring out those kinds of things, because if, if there isn't that bond and that camaraderie within the locker room, like it doesn't matter what you do as a coach you're not going to win, <laughs> you know? So it's almost like one of your most important jobs is to make sure you have a pulse. And you even hear that about successful coaches, right? You hear like they have a pulse of the locker room. They know what's going on within, within the group. And uh, if I were to go, I've said this a couple of times, if I were to go back and do it again, that's something that I would put a lot of stock into is making sure I'm talking to the players and knowing what's going on when the players are interacting with each other and, and all that kind of stuff to make sure that the culture within them is, is really healthy because you have to have that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, how young do you think that that is something that needs to be done? Like the coach having the the finger on the pulse and at what level and um i i mean i don't know probably youth hockey the older levels of youth hockey bantams midgets maybe i mean when when you're in youth hockey the parents are a part of that too <laughs> so right. you have to have like a good culture within the kids you have to have a good culture within your parents and then you can have a successful season that's something that i've learned in my let's call it research and going around and talking to a bunch of organizations and coaches and youth hockey and parents um but I think just the, the people side of it, I mean, you cannot downplay that. It's so important. Well, I, I totally flash back. And, you know, I think this was still to this day, one of the best episodes, if not the best episode we did was with our moms. 
and hearing your mom tell the stories about you know your cya team that won nationals in, in minor hockey obviously you know it's a championship when you're young but i remember driving down to st louis and just being in awe of like everything you guys had at cya like from the coach to like your team camaraderie to like the skill stuff that you guys were doing in practice stuff i've never even heard or seen before and then the biggest thing was like your parents were always hanging out every time i came up to chicago it was like team party and all the parents are hanging out and having just as much fun as all the kids are in the basement playing shinny hockey running around like little idiots like it was so cool to see that and i remember thinking that when i was that age because like i've never been on a team where like all the parents like want to hang out and like you know eat together and you know go out for adult beverages together and like i just had never seen that and you guys were absolutely filthy so it's it's that always stuck with me it's really interesting for sure. Well, a couple things to that. Number one, what you probably don't know is that that took a lot of freaking work because there were parents that did not buy into what we were doing at the beginning of the year. And it was, it was like, it could have been a disaster. Like we ended up winning the national championship, but it was close to being a disaster because we had a Russian coach who did things very unorthodox. (laughs) And there were some parents that were like, what is going on right now? And so it took a lot of work to make the culture that way. And that's, I give my mom and dad a lot of credit because my dad was the assistant coach. My mom was the manager. And so they made sure to get the parents to have roles and buy in and all that kind of stuff. So that was, um, I mean, that was something that was absolutely huge. And then the other thing is like, and this is an interesting question too, like you talk about culture and all this kind of stuff. Is it easy to have a good culture when you're winning? And is it tough to have a good culture when you're losing? Like it's the chicken and the egg, right? Like that's, that's something that needs to be talked about too. Like if you go 0-3 in your first three games, hmm, it is a little bit different. Then if you go three and zero in your first three games, what do you think? I mean, yeah, just well, just the feel in the locker room is different for sure. There's no doubt about that. No matter what age, the feel in the locker room when you're buzzing around the ice and you guys are winning, you you know you string two, three, four, five, six in a row, whatever. Like the locker room's just light. It's fun. The coaches are having fun. No matter what the level is, now you flip that, you lose two, three, four, five, six in a row, and it's like you know, just zombies walking around. Nobody wants to look each other in the eye. Like nobody's having fun. You know what the interesting thing is though? And, and I'll go back to it because if you haven't listened to our podcast with Chris Butler yet, I think you need to go and do that because it was unreal. And, uh, he talked about, it's a little bit similar to the AIC stories that we're talking about right now, where he was playing for the wolves in Chicago. And, uh, Craig Berube was the coach who obviously just won a Stanley cup with uh, the blues. And he talked about a story about how they went, I think it was 0-3 or 0-4, and, and it was a Saturday night game, and they lost. And Bruby calls him into the coach's room, and Butts was the, was the captain of the team at the time, and he's expecting to get absolutely reamed out by, uh, by Bruby. And Bruby basically brought him in and said, hey, we're okay. Like, I need you to go out. And I, you guys need to have a good time and, and get to know each other as a team tonight. Like, you need to go... And, and just have a good night and we'll come back on Monday. We'll get to work. And like, so it kind of goes back to what this entire podcast was about with weeds is like the coach is having a pulse on the room and understanding the human element of winning hockey games and, and developing a culture because Owen four, it's very easy at Owen four to, to blow your gasket and for things to go wrong. It's very easy also when you're three and O four and O to go the, the other way and get a little bit complacent and think things are, you know, 
rosy and all that kind of stuff. So coaches that have the pulse on the room, I think that's incredible. And when you're making decisions solely based on the culture and the health of the culture of your team, I think those are the coaches that succeed uh, at, at any level. Forget the highest, I mean, the lowest levels and the highest levels as well. Yeah. I mean, I, as usual, I 100% agree with you. Um, it doesn't matter. Like, it shouldn't matter win, lose, whatever. Like, if, if as we've talked about, like, with systems before, quote unquote, like, it doesn't really matter what system you're running. You're going to get the most out of whatever it is if everyone's bought in and everyone's, like, pulling the rope together in the same direction. It's the same thing with culture. Like, if everyone's bought in, even if you lose a couple games, it does. it's not because of the culture probably like if you have a good culture so don't abandon it don't like just change everything up like stick with it make sure everybody's doing their x's and o's and all that stuff correctly and then keep the culture the same don't uh, that's probably not the problem it's probably like guys aren't executing on whatever they're trying you're asking them to execute on if you have a good culture yeah man culture's everything culture what do you think this culture this podcast pretty good i think we've said culture 482 <laughs> times <laughs> <laughs> we should probably get to the conversation, huh? Yeah. Anyways, so uh, again, as always, before we get over to the conversation with Weeds here, we want to thank everybody for tuning in and uh, listening and shooting us ratings and reviews. Uh, all that kind of stuff helps us to get feedback on what we can do better uh, and also helps us to, to get a wider range. Again, we're starting a movement here. We want to create some positivity, some positive vibes in the hockey world. And uh, if you like what we're doing, please, please, please uh, help us get the word out and share us. Take a picture, a uh, screenshot of uh, your your phone if you're listening to it on your phone and put it on your social media. Tag us. Uh, email people, as Jeff likes to say, fax it to anybody. You know, <laughs> yeah, Do what you can to, to help us spread, uh, spread the positive vibes about the hockey world because uh, it is an unbelievable world. And uh, we have what we have because of the great sport of hockey. So any way that we can spread the love and positivity, we, we would love to do it. Um, and I think this is a great conversation with Coach Weedler from a AIC, unbelievable turnaround, and it was so cool to hear him uh, talk about how they did it. So, um, Jeff, if you're okay with it, without further ado, let's head it on over to Stephen Wheeler. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast assistant coach for AIC American International College, Steve Weedler. Weeds, how you doing today, man? You uh, all set and ready to go after being on the road for about two months or what? <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, Tolf, Jeff. Uh, I'm excited to be on. Uh, yeah, beginning of October, best time of the year, right? Like uh, recruiting slows down a little bit in the, the beginning of the season's here, so ready to go. Love it. Love it. Well, uh, we definitely wanted to get into your time at AIC with the special year that you guys had last year, but we'll do that, you know, a little bit further along in the episode at, uh, at first we want to kind of start off by asking you, you grew up on Long Island, had some great mentors coming up along the way. So I wanted to ask you about, uh, growing up and, and fall in love with the game, how, how it was out in Long Island. Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up on Long Island, New York. Um, my Dad is a you know a diehard Ranger fan. Um, he never played the game, um, but uh, the family has always been big hockey fans. And I didn't start playing hockey till I was ten or eleven years old. Um, I played house league. Um, managed to at some point latch on to like the the club team 
on Long Island because, you know, Long Island high school hockey isn't sponsored by the school. So it's like a club program. And, um, you know, you guys are always talking about it on the podcast, like getting surrounded by the right people. And, and I was lucky enough to have a bunch of them throughout my life and my youth hockey and, and coming up through junior and college. And, um, you know, one of the first ones was a power skating instructor by the name of Matt Dixon, uh, who I got linked up with through, through a mutual buddy uh, when I was in ninth grade. Uh, Matt had played at St. Lawrence. He molded me into everything it was to be a hockey player. Like coming from a non-hockey family, nobody had played in my family. We, we had no idea about anything. I, you know, there was nobody to really teach me the skills of the game. And Matt took me under, under his wing and, and taught me all that. And then from there, I started playing travel hockey. Uh, I got linked up with a double A program, uh, the Long Island Rebels. I played there until I graduated high school. Um, I played on the high school club team and, uh, and the double A travel team uh, simultaneously for, for my whole college, uh, high school career. Um, and then I was out of practice uh, randomly my, my senior year of high school and this guy walked up to me and started talking about junior hockey and if I had any plans and I had never heard of it um, because of my, you know, my background in hockey and I had no idea what junior was. And uh, again, like a little bit of a, a bounce of good luck. Um, uh, the guy happened to be Al Rooney, um, who's now the, the head coach in Corpus in the NA. Um, and Al had just finished playing pro and was starting to coach. Um, and this was his first coaching job uh, up in Hudson Valley. Um, so I went back with my parents and talked about it. And my mom was like, no, you go to school after high school. And my dad was like, if he wants to pursue it, let's try and pursue it. And I went out to Hudson Valley and it was an unbelievable experience. Played three years up there uh, for Al. Um, didn't end up getting any D1 offers. Fell in love with Elmira College, uh, Division Three program in uh, upstate New York. And went to Elmira for my freshman year, and I ended up not playing in a single game. Um, didn't play in one game, sat in the stands the entire year. Um, we had a great team. We went all the way to the Final Four. We, we floated between first and fifth in the nation the entire season. Um, ridiculous, you know, win-loss record. Three All-Americans on the team. <clears throat> and I just kind of chalked it up to, hey, you know, buy your time, be a good team teammate. Uh, keep working, get better, come back from my sophomore year, doesn't go the way I want. And at the beginning of the year, meetings right after tryouts, um, the coaches there kind of advised me, like, if you, you know, essentially, Steve, we'd love to have you on the team, but if you want to be a, a real player, uh, your best bet is to transfer out. Um, and, you know, this is before there was a transfer portal and that whole scene. So um, it was a little bit scary transferring. Uh, I had reached back out to the schools that had been recruiting me before I decided on Elmira. And I was lucky enough that Jeff Beanie at the university of Southern Maine gave me a second chance. Um, I can't explain to you again, surrounded by the right people, like how much Jeff Beanie meant to me and what he did for me, um, you know, developed me as a leader and as a human being and obviously a hockey player and, um, after my you know, time with Jeff at USM, I was able to play two years professionally down in Knoxville. Um, and then I was actually training up in the Boston area with uh, Jeff. I'm pretty sure he's one of your buddies, uh, John Lounsbury. Uh, oh, I saw him and, yesterday. 
Yeah, um, he's an old USM buddy of mine. He graduated from Southern Maine before I was there, but um, always stayed in touch with me and helped me out. And I was training with him. Um, and he's like, one day I'm in the coach's office, and he pretty much said to me, like, really off the cuff, like, didn't you want to get into coaching? And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. And he said uh, he just heard of a job opening up right down the road um, at Curry College. He knew the head coach, TJ Manisterski, that I wanted to reach out. So I said, yeah, please. And uh, went in for my interview at Curry College the next day and really hit it off with TJ in that interview um, and was lucky enough to work for TJ for two years. TJ is an unbelievable hockey mind. Um, has you know our friendship has grown and he's been a real mentor to me um and really taught me the ropes of what it was to get into coaching um and all the different things that go into it besides just you know practice planning and game planning all the other parts of it and i was there for two years um the assistant coaching job opened up at aic an old teammate of mine uh, mike towns uh, who I played with in Knoxville was already here working for Gary Wright. Um, he was able to, to, you know, help me uh, at least get the interview, uh, get on the phone with Gary Wright. I ended up getting the job here, worked for Gary Wright for a year. And my time under him for a year was unbelievable. Gary ended up stepping away from the game after that one year that I was working with him. And that kind of takes you up to the present. Like, so, you know, the, Admin over here ended up hiring Eric Lang, um, and Eric ended up keeping Townsie and I on staff, and the development continues, right? Like, I'm lucky enough to work for Eric, and he's been a great mentor, and I've learned so much under him. And so, like you guys are always saying on the podcast, you, you get hooked up or surrounded by the right people, um, and you just take off from there, and, and you just keep on developing. Let me ask you this, Steve, because, uh, you know, Tof was obviously a, a assistant coach at, at a Division One program, and I don't know, Cornell, I guess I've heard of it. But um, I wanted to ask you, because I haven't, we haven't really talked about this on the podcast, what was the interview process like to become a D1 coach? You know, you go, go from a D3 program, and that's amazing. It's a super high level. But, you know, a lot of young coaches say to me, I want to coach D1, and even, even me, I think – I would love if I was ever going to get into coaching professionally, I think my ideal level would probably be division one. So what is it like when, when you get to like, how do you start the interview process and then what happened? Yeah, it's, it's obviously probably different at every institution and different at every level, different at every league. But um, for me, I can speak to my experience. You know, I, had a mutual connection with Mike Towns and I just reached out to him to see, to gauge what the interest level for was from, you know, around the college hockey world and the hockey world in general as to who was kind of in that pool for assistant coach. Um, and Mike had let me know there's, there were some serious guys like guys that had NHL coaching experience or NHL players and AHL coaching experience. And, um, you know, I think when that, when Mike gave me that news, it kind of hit me right in the chest. Like, what? Well, you know, I'm just, I was a D3 player. You know, I played in the SPHL and um, I got two years of coaching under my belt at Division Three. I, I don't know if I stack up to these guys. And, um, you know, at the same time, he was like, hey, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll mention you to, to Gary. And, and um, we had been going down to the, 
like the job opened up and then like the next week we were going down to Naples for the AHCA convention. So I had it planned out where I was going to place a call to Gary and try to just get his, my name into his ear. Um, and then I was going to find him down in Naples and, and hopefully get a chance to sit down and talk with them. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Obviously Mike had made the connection for him that, uh, to, to remind him of who I was. And then I got face to face with Gary down in Naples. And, it, and it's funny because you're talking about the process. And, and I think the process at times is a little bit of a roller coaster. Like you think you did great and then you don't hear anything and then it might pick back up. And there's so many things at different schools behind the scenes with HR and all these different, you know, hiring committees and everybody's got their hand in the pot where you got to kind of stay the course. Um, and then, you know, once I got on campus, I, I, you know, I guess I did a good job. And Gary, you know, decided to offer me the job. So that was kind of the process for me. But there was a lot of peaks and valleys, and, and it stretched out for a while throughout that whole process. Did you uh, did you wear a suit to your to your interview? And was somebody sitting behind you trying to clear up the whole Pam Pan debate? <laughs> um, no, no such other scene. There was nobody behind me uh, trying to figure it out. I hope people out. get that uh, reference. They do. I, I got it right away. <laughs> uh, the other thing, like, it's interesting that you say, like, your your process weeds because the other thing that I always tell coaches that want to get into the business is that it's almost like you're always on an interview. Like, the formal interview is is obviously a part of it. But like the way you treat people and like the type of person you are when you're around the rinks or you're interacting with kids or parents or coaches or whatever, like it's almost like you're always on an interview. And uh, like you mentioned, like you wouldn't have gotten the one job if it wasn't for Lounsey because he he knew who you were as a person and he could vouch for you. You know, you wouldn't have gotten the AIC job if it wasn't for having that relationship with Townsy and he knew who you were um, and, and could vouch for you. Like I would not have gotten my job at Cornell as an assistant coach had I not, you know, played for shape and he didn't know kind of like who I was as a person and what I stood for for sure you know so like yeah. as for all the younger coaches that are out there you know it's not just you know at the interview it's about the relationships that you form and the types of people that you form relationships with and how much effort you put into those relationships and and how you treat people I think you're you're almost always on an interview and a lot of head coaches like if you ask them they kind of like when a job opens up like when the AIC job opens up when Townsie goes to Clarkson I would imagine that you and Langer had a pretty good idea of somebody that you wanted to hire or for any job out there like those relationships are really really important and you want to be the guy that's kind of like the first person that comes to mind when those those jobs open up and uh, so I think it just the understanding that just kind of like how you act and how you treat people is a huge part of the interview process even though it's not like the formal interview process that's like an unbelievable point. Like I, I haven't heard it said that way, but it is like that, that you're, you're always on an interview and it's funny you bring up the process here when, when uh, Townsie left for Clarkson. Um, yeah. We had an idea of who we wanted, you know, a pool of guys that we think would be good candidates. Um, and we ended up hiring Corey Schneider and he's been unbelievable great for guy. us. Um, unbelievable. And the, the great, the great thing about your point is it's exactly like you're saying, like, we always, you know, Corey was at UMass Boston. Um, and before that, I think he was at Wentworth and we always saw Corey in the ranks. So he was working, he was recruiting like crazy at the division three level, you know? So we know he's ready to work. Um, he was always professional, always great in conversations, could carry a conversation. 
Um, I, you know, just in passing, I'd heard him talk to recruits and he sounded very professional and knowledgeable. Um, so it's all those things that you're saying, like I had been out there and maybe not had direct conversations with Corey, but I'd run into him, um, and then work a couple camps with him in the summer and got to know him as a guy. And, you know, all those things kind of connect together to make it a great fit. And, and same thing for Langer. Yeah, for sure. And I, I remember like, I can't remember if it was in Mike Babcock's book or if it was, uh, you know, listen to him talk in some TV show or something like that. But he was talking about how when he coached the Red Wings, that was the interview for his two most important jobs. So when he was coaching for the Red Wings, he coached Steve Eiserman, who hired him as the head coach of the Olympic team in Canada. You know, and had right. he not been a good coach in Detroit, that wouldn't have happened. Same thing with Brendan Shanahan. He coached Brendan Shanahan in uh, in Detroit, and Shanahan gave him his job in in Toronto. So, you, you, like that relationship building and how you treat people. I mean, and I even think about it too. Like, I, I'm sure a lot of assistant coaches, they're always kind of thinking, you know, like when they do end up getting their head coaching job, they probably know who they're going to want to hire, <laughs> just based on the relationships, sure. you know. Yep. Sure. So, sure. Uh, well, that's good, man. Well, I w- wanted to ask you because uh, there is a guy in Long Island that uh, pretty much everybody around our age kind of trained with, a guy named Alexei. He's a Russian guy. I actually got to meet him last year, and uh, I, I yep. actually trained with a Russian coach for, for three or four years when I was in Chicago, and we've talked about him, the Stanimal, uh, extensively on this <laughs> podcast before. So I wanted to ask you what it was like kind of uh, being under tutelage of, of Alexei and kind of what were some of the stuff that he did that allowed you to become a really good player yeah alexei well i would temper your uh description of being a really good player for me that's a <laughs> that's a that's a bald-faced lie <laughs> hope but i appreciate it relative, uh, relative. hey you played college hockey man it's yeah no, no i know hey don't kick no, yourself I, you did a great job <laughs> uh, thanks for the pump up jeff i appreciate it but uh no i i i did train with alexei and, and he was great and, and some of the names that he that he trained, you're right, like Chris Higgins, Mike Commissaric, Eric Nystrom, uh, Bobby Geffert, James Marcou, Mikey Marcou, Matt Gilroy, like the, the list goes on and on, and then a plethora of other guys. And, and um, he was unbelievable at doing the unconventional. Like, you know, he was a he was a stickler for detail. You, you I don't know how many times I had to repeat drills because I wasn't doing it the right way. And you know, with his um, you know, Russian accent. Maybe I didn't even understand what he was telling me to do a bunch of the times, but um, he never wanted you to do things the the normal way or the way somebody would think about doing them. You know, he was adding deception into things before deception was a hot button topic. Um, and if you look at the guys, especially the forwards that came up underneath him, even the defenseman, the offensive defenseman like Gilroy and um, the way that they played the game, was really outside the box and very deceptive and crafty. And, um, he was unbelievable at that. And, and like nothing else, like he had a a good player pool of kids that he was training. So when you trained with them, you kind of got better by getting pushed by those guys. So yeah, playing for him, there were some crazy things that happened from here to there. Sometimes you're scratching your head and laughing at some of these stories, but yeah, it was great learning from him. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up deception because, you know, when I was playing for Stan, it would have been probably late 90s, early 2000s, right around there. 
and uh, yep. like it's like deception. That's all we did. And I remember one of the games that we played literally almost every practice was handball. So everybody would drop their sticks. We would play three on three or four on four cross ice with a soccer ball. And the rules of the game were like, you can only hang on to the ball for like one or two seconds. Then you had to get rid of it or Stan was going to blow the whistle. Yeah. It was an automatic turnover. But the, one of the other rules was like, when you passed it, you could not be looking at the guy that you were passing it to. Right. So if you were passing it to well, a guy yeah. on your left, you had to look right and pass it to the guy on your left. And it's, you know, it's 20 years ahead of his time because deception, I mean, as we all know, is like the biggest buzzword in hockey today. Everybody talks sure. about it. And, uh, but it's just so interesting how they do think outside the box and they're kind of ahead of their time. And just being able to learn those things just allows you to just have such a better knowledge of the game too, and how to become a better player. A hundred percent. And, and, the other thing that along the deception lines, like I was talking with, uh, I was talking with James Marcou, who's at Harvard um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, I love James. <laughs> sorry, Cole. but he's at Harvard, yeah. so it is what it is. Sorry, sorry, Cole. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was crazy in the way that Alexei, like, you would come down off the wing and, and you'd shoot, um, you know, just from outside the dots, top of the circle, and he would blow it right down, and you know pretty much blow you off for like, what are you doing? Like, that's never going in. And he would come down and then he, I mean, he was a great player. He could really demo anything he was talking about. And, um, he would come down he'd fake the shot, uh, with the shoulder lean and then he'd push out to his forehand and then he'd come back through, you know, with his feet through his legs. Um, and it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll pull that off. Hold on. I'm a defensive <laughs> defenseman, but like, at the same time, it, you know, for guys like, like Marku and his son, uh, Vladdy, um, the way these guys grew up with that, that kind of skill base, like you could see how it translated into their pro careers and stuff. Yeah, totally. Another thing about deception that you even just mentioned with his shoulders, like when we were doing stuff with Stan, if you didn't put your entire upper body into a fake, he would blow the whistle and make you do a somersault. So like when you're yeah. doing deception, it's not like what I talked about with the handball. It's not just like look one way and pass it the other way. It's legitimately like throwing your entire upper body towards one yep. way, looking like, yep. a, looking like a fool almost like that, and then doing going the other way. But it's amazing when you get into the games how much it works and um, I know a big thing in, in teaching the game right now is, and, and not just hockey, but in all sports, when you talk about youth development is reading body cues. Like we're taught defensively yeah. to always read body cues and, uh, that deception with your, the more you can, the more you can use your entire body to kind of like f fool the defender with your body cues, the better you're able to make a fake and get around them. And, uh, it's just so funny to hear you kind of say that kind of stuff going with your Russian coach, because it's just like, it's honestly, it's bringing me back to my childhood. I'm getting excited about it because I remember how amazing those practices were and how much they made me a better player. I was just thinking, <clears throat> and a big thing too, Toph, you're talking about from like a forwards perspective, I always tell my D-men too, like as they're going back on a puck, like if you want to skate right with it, throw your body left, maybe like go over the puck so you don't have to actually stick handle it because then maybe you bobble it, but like make it look like that. Again, as a four checker, I'm watching the guy's body, I'm watching his skates, I'm watching how his hips and his shoulders twist. If you're going full speed trying to forecheck someone and they throw that huge fake, what are you going to do? You're going to bite on that forecheck and then you quickly peel out to the right. Now you're off to the races. You're out much cleaner. I tell my demon all the time to do that. And it's crazy when they listen to me, it works. Kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, You're such a tool. I wonder like what the players that you, that you coach, what they do when they listen to these episodes. <laughs> I, th- they probably don't listen enough to them. I'll tell them, I'll tell them to listen. I'm like, Hey, we had a really good episode. And then two months later, they'll be like, Oh my God, that episode was so good. I'm like, I told you to listen to that two months ago because I know that it would specifically help you little Johnny. Uh, pretty funny. <laughs> Poor little Johnny. Poor little Johnny. Well, that's good. That's that's good conversation, man. The the other thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, we haven't. Uh, there's not much knowledge about the SPHL, uh, and and we certainly haven't talked about it on the podcast yet. But you were able to play two years of pro hockey down in Knoxville, which I I have to imagine was an unbelievable time. I have to imagine. I'm like thinking about when I played in the Central League and coming to some of those southern towns and how much they love their hockey and specifically how much they love their fights too. But uh, talk to us a little bit about your experience playing in Knoxville and uh, was it a pretty sweet experience for you? It was unbelievable. Um, we were down the block from the University of Tennessee. Yes. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you yeah, basically went to college big, for six years, is what you're saying. Yeah, you two more years yeah of college. Exactly. It was unbelievable. And, and you know, the last the last two of the six, I didn't have to go to class at all. So, <laughs> that's nice. Um, you know, you just you know, you're living the pro lifestyle. There's a lot of time on the bus and everything, but playing in actual Knoxville was an unbelievable experience. And I think anybody would say it like you know, pack the house every night. Um, it's an older barn, but you know, fits, I think 5,500 in it or 6,000, somewhere around there. Um, it's packed every single night, you know, lead the league and sellouts when I was there, um, played for a, a really good players coach. Um, Mike Cragen, who was, you know, fun to, fun to play for. And he, you know, he was all about trying to get his guys up to the coast and that kind of thing. So I can't say enough about playing in Knoxville. It was an unbelievable experience. Uh, I really enjoyed my two years there. That's awesome, man. Well, it's funny, like a lot of the players when they get maybe after a year or two of pro hockey or whatever, it, it's always comes to that decision, right? Do I, do I move on with my life and start my professional career or do I stay in hockey? And everybody's always in a rush to kind of start their life. I feel like, and I, I certainly kind of was, and I I don't want to say I regret leaving early because I had an unbelievable opportunity to coach at Miami of Ohio, but like, there's still times where I'm like, man, I freaking miss playing so much. What if I just did it for another year or two or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, did you ever have those feelings too? A hundred percent. I think every guy has that. I want one more year, right? Like, I, I don't think there's ever a good time to stop being a player. Like, yeah, when I, like I said, with my story, I was training to go back to Knoxville and I was with Loundy and, and fully was going back to Knoxville. And, um, you know, life just kind of stepped in. My wife, uh, was going to school at Northeastern and, I was training in Boston with Loundy. This school, Curry College, is right in Boston. So, like, it all kind of lined up, and I knew eventually I wanted to get into it. It's so hard to get into college coaching, so I kind of had to just take it, right? Um, But, yeah, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, every day I think back and say one more year would have been awesome, 100%. Ugh. Same here, man. Like people ask me all the time. I don't know if they ask you guys too. Maybe Jeff, you're new into the coaching, but people always ask me like, what you miss, what do I miss more? Is it coaching or playing? And, uh, it's an easy one for me. Like I miss playing more and the way that, the way that I always like, and I loved coaching and still do, 
But at the same time, I, what I tell people is like when I fall asleep and I dream about hockey, like I'm not dreaming about being a coach. <laughs> all, all of my hockey really? dreams, I'm skating and I'm playing 100. percent And uh, it's just the you know, scouts and all that. Told, that's not, <laughs> those aren't the, those aren't the dreams. Those are not the dreams. They are fun <laughs> while you do them, and they're exciting, but uh, not as exciting as uh, as playing in front of. Uh, the five five or six thousand people in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> you get yeah, you get yeah, such yeah. a rush from teaching a kid a new skill and then seeing him go out and execute it, or or you know like <clears throat> you're on the bench and a kid who's just always looking to pass, and you were like during a game like this happened actually yesterday in our game. We got this nasty kid. He's probably a candidate for NTDP. Like he's definitely up there, and um, he's a very good player, but he's kind of a pass first player but he has an absolute rocket and there was this there was this time where like you know he passed up a shot to pass it try and pass it thread the needle through like three guys and he comes back to the bench and i'm like hey, look i'm never going to tell you what decision to make but just trust your shot like you have an absolute bomb and you can score if you're below the top of the circles no doubt in my mind on a lot of shots and also like if if you shoot and you get a rebound and somebody else scores like you still get a cookie like you get an assist so like be selfish sometimes Literally, like three shifts later, he comes down and wires a clapper. Goalie didn't even move and scores. And obviously, like, I'm not the reason he scored, but maybe, like, it helped him to be have more confidence in himself. And, like, that rush you get from, like, helping a kid, there's no other real feeling like that. I mean, I love playing, obviously, and I miss playing, and I would rather be playing than coaching for sure. But that being said, I, I definitely encourage any players listening to this, like go out and coach. Even if you're a junior player, go to like a squirt practice, go out there, help your, your housing brother at practice, like give the kids some pointers. It feels really good to help other people like learn a new skill or something. Yeah, no totally. crickets. <laughs> well, the, the other thing too is, uh, Jeff, you, you would appreciate this and you, you might be getting it or you'll be getting it in maybe three or four years. Um, when you're three or four years out of play and you've been, you know, having an influence on these kids as a college coach, one of the coolest things is seeing the impact from a longer term perspective. So recruiting a kid and then having them for four years at your school and seeing the progression of where they are as a, as a player, but also as like a young man too, or a young woman for the people who are coaching women like that, that to me is, is even more of a cool feeling is just like, for sure. Seeing them just, just leave just more confident, mature, ready to conquer the world, all that kind of stuff. Weeds, I don't know if you feel the same way too in coaching college. No, yeah, totally spot on. Like, So my first recruiting class here is now seniors, and they'll be leaving after this year. And like, just to, just bringing them in, recruiting them, remembering like the recruiting calls, right? Like you're trying to get to know them and um, – and now seeing them as seniors and they're, I mean, they're men, right? They're 24. I mean, we might have a 25 year old, like they're men. Um, they're going to go off and play pro hockey or do whatever they do, but they're going to get married. And the relationship I know with this whole class, you know, I'll stay in touch with them forever. And, and just seeing the impact that they've had on the program and the way that they've been able to, like they came in with an idea and they've been able to, kind of make that happen for themselves and the vindication of that and, and, you know, being a part of that relationship and that, that team family, like that, like you're saying, there's, there's nothing better than that. Nothing better than it. 
Yeah, there's nothing better than that. And there's also nothing better, too, than I'm, I'm sure what you guys had last year where the entire group is just bought in. And just hearing you talk and what you were saying earlier, it kind of sounds like that was certainly a, a huge piece of, of why you guys were so successful that year and, and turning your program around from, you know, perennially at the bottom of the conference to, you know, winning your league and then also knocking off St. Cloud in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Um, so now that we're there, I, I would love to kind of ask ask you just it's it's kind of like a broad question but how'd you guys do it <laughs> you know like I don't want to get too much into specifics yet but if you had to give me your top two or three reasons of how you guys changed your entire look of your program in such a short period of time what would you say I mean I guess it's kind of a cliche answer um but it's culture like but what about and, it and it's pl- it's player driven at this point. And it was player driven last year. Um, that was like, you're saying everybody was bought in. Like that was from the players. Like there's, there was, you know, last year there was no dictation from the coaches. And obviously, you know, we're here to guard the culture, but, um, the players just took it and ran with it. And the buy-in was so high and I, I can't even put it into words, but that was the biggest thing that was the biggest thing. And I guess you can cultivate culture in a bunch of different ways. And we had our ways that we tried to do it. Um, but it really was player driven. So how do you get that? Because just talking around the rinks and, and talking to other coaches, I mean, that's one thing that I think we all strive for is like when we don't have to coach very much and the players can police themselves. I mean, there's nothing better as a coach because player led teams are, are going to win. Like, I think that's, that's awesome. So h- how did you guys cultivate that? Because that's something, first of all, the coach can't have as they can't have a big ego. <laughs> they got to, they got to allow right. the players to do it. But you know, what are maybe some things that you guys did that, uh, that allowed the players to take ownership of the team? Well, I think it starts, I think it starts all the way back in recruiting. Like, yeah. You, you know, when we're recruiting these guys and Langer, you know, Langer uses the term a mindsets. Um, and what that really means for us is like second and third effort players. Like everybody could give a good first effort, um, but you got to give a second and third effort. Sometimes maybe a fourth effort um, and you got to be mentally tough and you got to be competitive. So like when we're recruiting those guys, we knew that was, you know, call a spade a spade. We're never going to out talent most of these teams. Right. And that's just not who we're going to be. Um, so back in the recruiting stage, we're looking for captains. We're looking for a mindsets. We're looking for second and third effort players who are mentally tough that we can push and are competitive. Um, and that's going to lead to, you know, one day, like we have to guard the culture and instill the culture, but one day they're going to just take it and run. And it's nice that it worked that, that, that way for us, it doesn't always work that way. Um, but that's kind of how we did. And then we, you know, we did some things along the way. We, we made sure to develop the leaders that these guys are, were freshmen and we knew that they were going to be a big part for us. Uh, it was three years ago going on four now. And, um, Langer always says the most important meeting is the meeting after the meeting. So when you leave the room, whatever's being said in that room, that's actually what matters. Not what, not what the coach was saying while he was in there. Um, and we knew that we had to recruit guys and bring guys in that would take our message and run with it. Um, so we had to develop them as well, bring them in coaches meetings, tell them how important they were. Um, you know, Langer would give different 
um, uh, leadership groups, books to read on, on becoming a leader and stuff like that. And we just created a positive, first and foremost, a positive culture and a culture of commitment. Like, you know, you had to be all in or these guys were going to cast you out. Not like the coaching staff necessarily, but um, the players. And we guarded the culture every day as a, as a staff. And then we watched them kind of grow from there. And we did little things along the way that, you know, you got to set your standard and then you got to guard it as far as culture is concerned. And there was a couple of times where Langer did some things from a culture standpoint that like as an assistant coach, you're like, Oh my God, like we're going to get killed. But he was, he was spot on and we lost some games because of culture reasons, but he was spot on in developing the culture and, and building the culture. And I can think of one story that's pretty crazy. Like we went up to our first year together. We went up to Maine um, first road trip of the year. Three guys late. Uh, no, um, three guys missed the bus, and and uh, three others were late for it. So, Yikes. yeah. So and 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 Langer's first year as a head coach, right? So we're like, what are we gonna do? And pretty much these guys, you know, we got to go from campus to the rink, which is a mile away, and then pack up at the rink and leave. So. Um, these guys drove themselves down to the rink and they made it onto the bus at the rink. So Langer's like, okay, they could come on the trip. But then we didn't, we ended up playing Maine with nine forwards. We didn't dress anybody. So we played, we didn't dress any of the guys that were late or missed the bus. Um, and we're in there with, a, a you know, all freshmen. And then we only played with nine forwards against you Maine at the time, which was a big time, you know, opponent for us. Um, and we got, if you look at the box score from that, that we like we got killed um but, but like i'm talking about like massacred but we set the precedent right like and we were guarding the culture um last one one more before i, I don't want to go off on tangent but last year we, we ended up sitting you know our only all-american that we've had in the division one history we sat him his first two penalties in the in, during the season he ended up getting sat because they were selfish penalties and that's one of the things that like we talk about all the time is not hurting your team. And he kind of got in that situation and fair or unfair to him. Um, we, we sat him and it was a culture move. Uh, and, you know, we just, we've removed a few players throughout the year for the program and for culture reasons, but those are the kind of things that we've done. That's awesome, man. I'm, I, I'm thinking back as you were telling that story and I, this is probably wrong, but it's probably not that far off from, from being right. And I think in my coaching career, the two longest winning streaks I ever had were started the game right after our coaching staff sat guys that were our better players on the team that had bad attitudes. And, uh, so yep. I remember specifically when I was at Miami of Ohio, we did the same thing. I think we might've played with less players against Michigan state at Michigan state when they had him rolling with like Tory Krug was on the team and stuff. And, uh, we ended up winning that game and just going on an absolute freaking tear after that. I think we made it up to even number one in the country at one point. And then one of my years at Cornell, similar thing, like we had some culture buy-in issues and we sat some of our better players for either selfish penalties or just bad attitudes and stuff. And then we went on a run after that. And it's just, it's such a, like you have, have to call you have to coach to culture you can't coach to win individual games 
And I think we've all been, you know, very, we, I think we've all made mistakes in that because you just, you want to win that next game. That's what we prepare all week for is to win that next game. But if you take a bigger picture view of it and you think about the culture, the culture wins you championships, like coaching in the game yeah. might win you a game, but culture wins you championships. Yeah. And I give like Langer is unbelievable at, at seeing the, the long play. Um, I, me, me and Townsy were sweating back then. Like, we're going to go play Maine with nine forwards, you know, like, <laughs> like, are we insane? And then, the, you know, they're, they're scoring power play goals left and right. And I'm running the PK and I'm sweating, like sweating through my collar. Like, Oh my God. Um, but yeah, like you said, like it's the long play. It's the way that you eventually develop that culture and win championships. I mean, I feel like that's just coaching in general, not even about culture, just like, more probably so in youth, but maybe not. I mean, I haven't coached at the level you guys have, but, you know, I always tell my team at the beginning of the year, we're going to do a bunch of stuff that you're not going to understand and you're not going to like that I'm going to constantly blow the whistle on you and be like, look, I asked for this detail. You didn't do it. I'm going to stop the practice and, like, call you out kind of. Not in a bad way, but like, hey, like, I told you to do this. There's a reason we're doing it. You will be better in two months and four months and six months. By the time you get to juniors, you're going to have this skill locked down that guys are then just learning. So, like, again, it's maybe sacrificing the, the flow of practice in the beginning of the year sometimes and, and all that type of stuff. But by the end of the year, they're doing everything the way that, that you know, Mike Barra, my head coach, and Chris Durso, our other assistant coach, were looking for. And then it's just smooth sailing. If you let those little details go by in the beginning of the year, you're going to be battling it all year long. So, I mean, that's our goal with, I, mean, I guess that's kind of culture, but kind of like coaching details. But same idea, I feel like. No, it really is. Like, you're like Jeff, like we talk about it all the time. You either correct it or you accept it. Right. Cause yeah. like if you don't correct it early on and then down the road, you're, you're not willing to accept that you, you know, what's going on. Well, well look back to day one and you didn't correct it right there. Like nip it right there, you know? Yeah. For sure. Love that. And I, I love what you said even before we were talking about this, about recruiting kind of like A players, mentally tough players. And I'm going to put you on the spot here because I feel like every coach says that. Every coach that we've had on sure. the podcast, every coach you talk to on the road, every coach when you hear them give a presentation, you know, it's like we want mentally tough players, we want tough players, we want team guys, yada, yada, yada. But I feel like every coach's default is to talent <laughs> because you need talent to win championships too. So – just I'll, I'll ask you this question, like how important is that to you and how much do you follow through with making sure you get mentally tough kids? And then the next question to that for the kids that are listening to this podcast, like what does that mean and how do you see that in a kid? Is it something that you see while they're playing? Is it something that you um, just in your information gathering about a player, like the types of questions that you ask coaches that coach them? Um, Two-part question, Go. <laughs> I don't even remember I, what the questions were, but great, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's a, I think I, I think I got it. It's a great question. Um, it's great for players out there to learn it. And here we do way more background work. Um, well, I don't know what everybody else is doing, but we do a lot of background work. And um, I so, think what does that mean? So, what it does can, that mean? What's the like? What kind of background so, work are you doing? I will call back. So I, you know, I don't want to name players names, but there's guys here that have been really big impact players for us that if I would have taken them at, at the surface level or what their junior coach at the time was saying, 
I would have thought either, you know, they're a quote unquote bad kid or they're a quote unquote bad for culture. Um, and this is, this is one of Langer's things like, okay, he said that, but let's dig deeper. And like, you go back to a, you know, 18 U coach, you go back to a 16 U coach, you find a, a high school coach that had him somewhere along the line and you're talking to these guys and, and it's paid off dividends in the, in the past and in the kids that we have here that, you know, Hey, he's not, he's not a problem. Here's his real story. Here's what happened. Um, he's not a bad kid. You need to hug him rather than push him. And you, you know what I mean by that? Like he needs, yeah. yeah. Like he's not a tough love kid. He's had this happen in his past. He needs you to rope him in and tell him why he's a part of this thing and what, what's going to make him a better player. And if you don't dig back, six coaches and you only talk to his coach, you know, wherever he is at the time in the USHL, you go, all right, he's, you know, he's not a good kid. So you can't always take it at, at face value. Oh, he's not an A mindset or he's not a hard worker just because that's not how that coach views it. Somewhere along the line, somebody's got the real story. So, you know, we've dug back pretty deep on guys to find out, you know, really what they're all about. And then there's the flip side, like you were saying, like there's guys on the ice where, you just see it. Like we got guys on the ice, like Jared Pike, and, and well, we have a ton, but Jared Pike and and Joel Kosher and 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 some other guys for us that you watch them play when they were playing junior, and you go, oh man, like this kid is gonna. If somebody doesn't calm him down, he might hurt somebody out here. And it's practice on a Tuesday, you know. So like, those those guys will really drive your culture. So there's two ways, right? Like you could see it in a game, you could see it in a practice. I love going down to watch practices. Uh, of, of junior teams because you get to see how a guy really works on a Tuesday at you know at noon, uh, in, you know in Janesville, like yeah, no, you know, like oh yeah, um, you could get a real sense of a player and talk to him afterwards and um, hit up the equipment manager. Those guys always know who's who's treating people the right way, like little things like that, and obviously stuff you've always you know you've heard, but those are the kind of things that we try to pull off. Yeah, that's uh, like that's that's incredible information. I swear, like it's so funny that you're saying that because I think about if I went back to recruiting, like if I was a college coach again, what is like what would I kind of do differently? And what I would do differently is I would go so far back into finding out a kid's past because what I've found in just a lot of the research that I've done and talking to a lot of people, like everybody has a story. Right. So if everybody yep. has a story, the more you can find out about that story, the more you can find out if that kid fits into your culture. And then once he gets to your culture, how best can you coach that kid? Because there's a let's say, like there's a lot of talented players out there. Right. Like there's a lot. You coach Division three. There's players that have the talent that are playing Division three that could play Division one from a talent standpoint. But for whatever reason, sure. they, they didn't make it. There's a lot of talented kids out there. So how much can you find out? Like, I want to know what that kid's most influential events in his life were. I want to know what his parents are like. I want to know what his teachers think of him. I want to know what his coaches think of him. And it's something that like everybody talks about. And I feel like there's not a ton of follow through about it. But I feel like if you want to build a culture and you want to bring in the right people onto the bus, that's your most important job as a, as a, as a recruiter and, and as an assistant coach. But on the flip side of that, let me ask you this, because the way that college recruiting now is kind of insane and things happen extremely quickly. So how, with the landscape kind of changing and things getting quicker, how, how has that maybe hindered your job in terms of recruiting and find out, finding out that stuff or, or has it even for you guys? No, I mean, 
it has in the sense that, that we're digging deep and, and somebody just, you know, uh, offers a kid and then deadlines them for the next day. And, and you know, that kind of <laughs> oh, stuff. Don't you, you know, like, yeah, I know. But that stuff, that stuff happens, right? And, and you do lose players. But, um, you know, we cast a wide net here um, for multiple reasons. So there's a lot of play, like you're saying, there's a lot of players in the player pool. Um, we've carved out a little niche for ourselves here. Um, so we're, you know, we're able to just, you know, at the end of the day, have we had to move quick on guys before? Yeah, of course we have. Um, at the same time, like, have we walked away from a kid who could really impact us? Cause we, you know, we, the reports we got back from, you know, diving deep, weren't that great. Yeah. We've done that too. So, you know, I think you can't have, you can't have it both ways. Um, but at the same time, as long as you're doing your homework, you know, uh, eventually it'll pay dividends. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, l- let me ask you something that you just talked about, and you talked about a niche, because I'm, you know, a quote-unquote entrepreneur right now, so I've been doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of people about entrepreneurship, and one of the things that I found out is that, like, the best companies are niche at something. Like, everybody knows what their total strength is as a company. Like, Amazon, you know who they are. Apple, you know who yep. they are. All that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's the same with, with sports teams too, right? So, like, I know, and I'm sure a lot of people know what Cornell hockey is based on just history and shape and all that kind of stuff. And that's something that you guys have kind of built at, at AIC in a very short period of time. So is that something that you guys think about, like who we are and what we are in the, in the quote-unquote recruiting market? And like, do you guys talk about that? Do you guys feel like you have that niche where people think they know kind of who AIC is right now? Yeah, I think we're, get, I think we're definitely getting there. Um, you know, we, we definitely recruit to an identity. Um, and we've done it differently, right? We've, we've gone for Europeans. Um, we are experts on the 19 and 20 year old pool. Um, and we try to turn over every stone, you know, we have the only player from the Western States hockey league on our roster. Um, we've taken a club transfer, um, non-qualifiers and ineligible guys do the work and try to get them eligible. Um, you know, if they have to sit a year, you know, doing things like that. But I think, that our identity that we recruit to is we call it hard skill. So they have to be, they have to play hard. They have to play fast. Um, and at the same time that, you know, they can't really be puck deficient. Um, and I know that's a blanket statement and a bunch of cliches uh, and you hate them. Um, but I had to throw it out there cause that's, that's kind of the identity that we try to recruit to. And, and, you know, another thing that's great is I'll be on the road and I'll like a player, um, Cole, Cole Langer and kind of talk about him and, and Langer say, will say something like, who is he? Or um, where does he fit? Um, you know, because we are trying to recruit to those building blocks and that identity. Um, so Langer's great at, yeah, he might be a great player, but does he fit what we do? Because you always, you always want to evolve and get better. But um, if you lose your identity, then you lose what makes you successful, I think. No, a hundred percent. Like, I, I think we could probably all agree. We've all kind of played at the higher levels that the teams that had identities that everybody knew what they were. I mean, that's, I think that's the most important thing for a successful program. Would you guys agree? Yeah, a hundred percent. I would say. 
Yeah. 100%. I mean, it doesn't matter what system you're playing. We always talk about this. It doesn't matter what your philosophies are, what your systems are. If everyone's on the same page, you're going to be better than if guys are on their own page. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or you allow them to. What What did you say? We just said uh, correct it or accept it. I mean, that's that's a great, yep. great, great line. I'm definitely stealing that. Stolen. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll give you the assist. No, he's not. It. He's going to take it for his own. He's going in with freaking practice tonight and say, I'm not <laughs> accepting any of this stuff. I'm going to correct it. It's like uh, you got you to you you cite it the right way. Like in college, like it's. You know, it's from me, but it's via via Langer. So that can get a little, <laughs> get a little lengthy. Yeah, that can get a little lengthy for you, Jeff, when you're talking to the kids. Well, the funny <laughs> part, you talked about the meeting after the meeting. Like I talk about that all the time in my team building stuff because I agree. I think I think the most important thing for like players and building their own culture within themselves are those meetings after the meetings. And we've all been there in those, you know, meetings after the meetings where you're just sitting around and playing video games or at dinner or whatever. And everybody's, it's like a, you know, a who's who of a bitch fest talking about what's wrong and all this kind of stuff. And that is just like the biggest downfall of any culture ever. But if you have like leaders who kind of squash that stuff and that negativity that, I mean, that's just, Oh my God, that's so important. No, it's the, it's the biggest thing. We do an after-action report when the season's over, um, and it's just a questionnaire to the players. And one of the questions is like, you know, do you see any culture problems and stuff? And obviously this is talking about where our culture's at. Like, you know, if the the leaders that we have here, like we've removed a couple players from the program for culture reasons. It, and again, I have said it like three times, but like it's player-driven. Like it wasn't the coaching staff saying this kid is not, what we want. It was the players saying like, Hey, we've tried to rope this kid in a bunch of times and he's, he's rowing in the opposite direction of us. So we got to do something here. Um, and when the players come to you with that, what do you, what are you going to do as a coaching staff? It's like, Oh my God, like, yeah, we got to do something here. Right. Like if they're identifying it, we got to make a move. Right. Yeah. So that's, 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 that was the greatest part about that. Yeah, that's cool, man. Well, tell us about last year because it was a magical season for you guys. Uh, won won the Atlantic Hockey Championship, then went on to the NCAA tournament, and uh, you know took on took down the number one team in the country at the time, St. Cloud. Uh, how how cool that of an experience was that for you and and your and your boys? Uh, yeah, indescribable, right? Like, um, I think just. I think watching those guys win the regular season and then win the postseason and then doing what they did in the tournament. Um, it's like what, what Jeff was saying before, like that feeling as a coach, when your guys pull off that kind of thing and, and they're driving the bus, it's like the best feeling in the world. Um, and it like nine times out of 10 going up against St. Cloud, like that game went the right way for us. Um, but you know, in the regular season, like our guys from, you know, January on the beginning of January, they were playing, like, we wanted to win the regular season. Our guys wanted to win it and they were playing playoff hockey from January on, like they were going. And I think that really led to our success. Like we were playing do or die games to get first place. Like Ben Lee was chomping at our heels and they went on a magical run to the end of the year too. Um, and then obviously the Niagara team went really hot up into the playoffs um, and we played them in the finals. So like if we weren't dialed in for that, that way for that long, I think we wouldn't have had the success that we had. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a reason why St. Louis won the Stanley cup this year, probably very similar. Like they had, uh, they had to play a lot of meaningful games. And then you look at a team like Tampa Bay who kind of 
skated through the regular season and they, they get swept in the first round by the number eight seed too. that, uh, that sandpaper that you have to build and, and that, uh, that adversity that you have to go through throughout a year is, is, uh, you know, it's crucial for, for winning at the end of the year because the games in the playoffs are extremely hard to win. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, um, I, we started last year, like three and seven. Or, or Did something, you really? something, something, something like that. Yeah. We lost, we lost our first two. Then we got a couple wins. Um, and then we lost like the next three or four. Um, and we had a tie mixed in there somewhere, but yeah, our record wasn't good to start the year. And we, we went to Quinn, we played Quinnipiac at home. And then we went to Quinnipiac and they, they beat up on us a little bit. Um, and after that game, it's crazy. Like we have a, you know, a group, a group chat, but like that Sunday after the game, Langer said it right in the group. He was like, we're going to win the championship in our league and we're going to go to the tournament after our biggest loss of the season. And I think that kind of just, the guys were just like, you know, it kind of brought them back together, like stay on track. We got to paint a picture of where we want to go and then work backwards. Um, And that ended up, that loss ended up propelling us forward. Like, Hey, we got to really dig in here. Um, So it was crazy. That's cool, man. That, I feel like, Jeff, I like your opinion on this too, but I feel like that text is almost like a really risky move because I feel like that text can, yeah. like, it can go one of two ways. I feel like it can go like, oh, this guy really believes in us or it can go like, okay, this guy's just unrealistic. He's, he's grasping at straws here, you know, trying to motivate us right now as a, as a player. But I think that's a testament to, to Langer and the fact that the guys went the right way with that text. And they were like, okay, yeah, like he believes in us instead of like, okay, buddy, like nice try. <laughs> well, it has to be genuine. No, I, like if he believes, if the team believes that he believes in them. Yeah. And they're going to believe in his belief. A lot of believes in there. That was pretty good, it. dude. That was good. <laughs> it, it does make sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 totally see that. If, if somebody believes in you and, and if a coach believes in me and I completely trust him and I believe that he cares about me and, and believes that I can do something, that gives me instant confidence in myself. You know, like Heaton's not giving it to me, but like it, it's showing me this guy cares. And then everything's going to be better. Like that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, well, we've been on here quite a bit here, Weeds, and this has been awesome conversation about, this is the stuff that I love to talk about, the culture and, uh, and just how important it is to winning hockey games and winning championships and stuff. And you guys, it sounds like, have an unbelievable one there in beautiful Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I know the, the hockey season is right around the corner. And, and like you said at the beginning, there's nothing better than uh, the beginning of, of October. So we want to, first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast here today. This was an awesome conversation, but certainly also want to wish you luck as you guys uh, look to repeat there. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was an absolute blast. Great combo. You bet, man. Well, uh, good luck with your first couple games, and uh, we'll be watching. So uh, take care, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Crush it. Appreciate it. Do it. Thanks. All right, take care. Later.